This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor, with a special edition of the podcast. From our second annual Circle Lecture, first broadcast on September 30th, 2020, this is Myron Magnet on the Founder's Priceless Legacy. The presentation includes an introduction by Roger Kimball and my post-lecture interview with Myron. A version of Myron's talk appears as our lead feature in the November 2020 issue of The New Criterion. Greetings. I'm Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion, and I am delighted to be with you on the occasion of our second annual Circle Lecture. I only wish that you could also be with us in person for this event recognizing the growing family of new Criterion stalwarts. Your support, moral as well as material, has not only made our work possible, it has also made it joyful and invigorating for us laborers in the cultural vineyard. The new Criterion began in 1982 as an experiment in cultural audacity. Was it possible, we wondered, to maintain a magazine that was at once serious but not academic, independent but not trivializing, lively but not beholden to the demotic and antinomian fashions of the moment? The odds, certainly, were against the enterprise. The pressure everywhere was and is toward the lowest common denominator. And this, ironically, was especially true in those institutions we had entrusted with preserving the noblest, most enlivening values of our culture. How they have let the side down in their minatory scramble for fake virtuousness. In such an environment, how could a small, independent journal of cultural criticism make its way? But, mirabile dictu, it did. And here we are, nearly 40 years later, fielding the most intellectually ambitious program of activities in our history. John Milton, when asked about the readership of Paradise Lost, replied that it was a fit audience, though few. The audience for the new criterion is similarly select, though it pleases me to report that it has been growing steadily. We now enjoy our largest circulation, both in print and online, in our history. That achievement is due in part to our stable of writers who, month in and month out, day in and day out on our website, bring you the best written and most incisive cultural criticism available anywhere. Quite simply, the new criterion is a key to unlock the storied treasures of our past. For while it is true that the New Criterion is known for its polemical stand against the toxin of political correctness and kindred moral deformations, it is also proven to be a rich resource in battling the enervating onslaught of cultural amnesia. And I might point out that while it now costs some $70,000 a year to attend an elite college or university, a subscription to the new Criterion can be yours for a mere $48 per annum. A bargain, surely. William Faulkner once observed that the past isn't dead, 
it isn't even passed. At the new criterion, we understand the urgency of that observation. We are dedicated to the great battle against the stupefying bane of presentism, that cynical and toothless bane of thoughtfulness, which would dissolve our humanity in a chattering cavalcade of cliché-ridden conformity. But if the new criterion has been blessed with its writers, it has also been blessed with its audience and its supporters. People, that is to say, like you. It is for you that we produce the new criterion, and it is for you that we organized this lecture series. Last year, Gary Saul Morrison, the great scholar of Russian literature, presented our inaugural circle lecture to a large and enthusiastic audience at the Union Club in New York. Today, under the censorious eye of our government masters, we are forbidden to congregate. But we are not, not yet, forbidden to speak. So, ensconced here in this semi-secure, undisclosed location, it is my honor to introduce Myron Magnet, who will deliver our second annual circle lecture, and who, not incidentally, has joined us at the New Criterion as this year's visiting critic, following on the footsteps of last season's critic, Victor Davis Hanson. I believe I can safely assume that Myron Magnet will be familiar to anyone who's tuned into this video cast. You know that he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George W. Bush. You know that he has written important books on Charles Dickens, the destructive legacy of the 1960s, the American founders, and most recently, Justice Clarence Thomas. You may also know that he taught English literature at Columbia University back when they taught English at that bastion of right think. And you may possibly even know that he worked in the real world as a columnist for Fortune magazine. Myron was also, of course, the editor of City Journal from 1994 to 2007. That is to say, in the glory days when Rudolf Giuliani helped to rescue the city from the depredations of various economic illiterates and utopian nincompoops. Would that someone of Giuliani's wit and competence were presiding over the city today. Rudy Giuliani, I say, helped to rescue New York. The City Journal, under Myron's guiding hand, helped to educate and guide the mayor. Everyone in the city has reason to be grateful to Myron for that tutelage. As a journalist, Myron has written on a wide range of subjects, from architecture and social policy to literature, history, and the Constitution, for many magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New Criterion. Myron, in short, is by way of being a national treasure, and it seems only appropriate that he should be speaking to us today about the founder's priceless legacy, itself a national treasure, and one, as Myron will show, that we are in danger of squandering. Thank you. Myron. Roger, thank you so much for that eloquent and generous introduction. And welcome to all of you in the new Criterion Circle, virtually, how I wish you could be here in person or I could be there in person. We'll look forward to doing it sometime very soon. 
However unfashionable to say so at the moment, the American founding is one of the noblest achievements of the Western Enlightenment. It created something breathtakingly new in history, a self-governing republic that protects the right of individuals, not serfs, not subjects, but equal citizens before the law to pursue their own happiness in their own way. Who could have imagined that such a triumph would come under the violent attack that now seeks to deny and besmirch it? Whether it flies the banner of the 1619 Project or Black Lives Matter or critical race theory, the new anti-Americanism condemns the Founding Fathers Project as conceived in slavery, not liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that we can never be equal citizens with equal rights. It is a militant anti-Americanism, too, like the iconoclasm of the English Puritans, who smashed the faces of the carved saints and angels in one sublime medieval church after another, or of the French sans-culottes, who dug up and desecrated nine centuries of royal bodies from their tombs in the Abbey of Saint-Denis, defacing for good measure the statues of the Old Testament kings on the facade of this first great Gothic building. Today's anti-Americanism seeks to pulverize and obliterate our national past as something too offensive and obscene to have existed. The current upheaval is the latest paroxysm of a cultural revolution that has gained momentum for half a century or more, and its trajectory from the universities to popular culture is too well known to all of you to need repeating. What I want to talk about today is the precious value of our inheritance from the Founding Fathers that today's vandals want to destroy. If they succeed, since history, even our own, doesn't always go forward and upward despite the claims of so-called progressives, we will find ourselves in a new dark age of constraint and superstition. At the heart of the founding was a thirst for liberty. In announcing our national freedom from imperial domination, the Declaration of Independence began by <clears throat> the Declaration of Independence began by asserting our right to individual liberty. For the founders, that liberty was not some vague abstraction. They understood it concretely, as people do who've suffered its opposite. They grasped it like those Eastern Europeans who once lived under communist tyranny, for instance, or like Jews who escaped the Holocaust. Remember that the Plymouth Pilgrims were only the first of many who came to the New World to escape religious persecution. Hard as it is to believe today, British law once forbade non-Anglican Protestants from worshiping freely, and it barred them from the great universities and from political office for holding and professing the wrong beliefs. 
In response, thousands of Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, and others fled. They brought with them their dissenting tradition of governing their own congregations and hiring and firing their own ministers. In other words, they brought to these shores a political culture of self-government. Moreover, because they were accustomed to reading the Bible and feeling free to judge its meaning for themselves, to believing that they had a direct relation to God and his word, independent of any worldly institution or authority, they also brought a deeply rooted culture of individualism and personal responsibility. For them, the individual and his conscience, his freedom of thought and belief, were preeminent. Longtime New Jersey Governor William Livingston, for instance, a signer of the Constitution, reminded readers of his hugely influential mid-18th century journal that it was the countless sufferings of your pious predecessors for liberty of conscience and the right of private judgment that drove them to this country than a dreary waste and barren desert. One such exile, for the right to think and believe for oneself, was his own Presbyterian grandfather. John Jay, our first Chief Justice, grippingly recalled how his grandfather, a French Protestant, returned from a foreign trading voyage to find his family and neighbors gone. Their homes were occupied by soldiers, their church destroyed, their savings confiscated. While he'd been abroad, he learned, France had revoked its toleration of Protestants. Only by luck did he sneak aboard a ship and sail away to freedom in the New World. Two of Jay's other grandparents similarly had to free, flee anti-Protestant persecution, one from Paris and one from Bohemia. Jay's son and biographer recounts this proudly. It was a living family tradition. As Edmund Burke warned his fellow members of Parliament four weeks before Lexington and Concord, when it was already too late, all Protestantism is a sort of dissent, but American Protestantism is a refinement on the principle of resistance. It is the dissidence of dissent and the Protestantism of the Protestant religion. Whatever might be the differences among American Protestant sects, they all agree, he said, in the communion of the spirit of liberty. So don't mess with them. Long before Emma Lazarus wrote about the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, George Washington noted that for the poor, the needy, and the oppressed of the earth, America was already what he called the second land of promise. This promised land offered, said James Madison, an asylum to the persecuted and oppressed of every nation and religion.
In fact, for Madison, trained at Princeton by the radical Scottish-born Presbyterian minister, John Witherspoon, it was red-hot outrage over a remnant of a religious oppression in the new world that drove him into a political career. Virginia, where Anglicanism was still the official established religion until the revolution, had jailed a group of Baptist preachers for their unorthodox religious writings. If you aren't free to think your own thoughts and believe your own beliefs, fumed Madison, you aren't free, period, since freedom is seamless. And as a practical matter, there can be no progress, either material or moral, without intellectual freedom. So when the 25-year-old revolutionary took part in drafting Virginia's Declaration of Rights, he rejected its original provision for religious tolerance. It's not government's business to tolerate somebody's belief or not. You are unconditionally free to think whatever your reason convinces you is true, government or no government. And that's what the Declaration of Rights ended up saying. After independence, Madison shepherded through the Virginia legislature the statute of religious freedom that Jefferson, then serving as ambassador to France, had drafted. No one can deny, Jefferson's statute declared, echoing Milton's sublime Areopagitica and prefiguring Mills on Liberty, that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself, that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition disarmed of her natural weapons, free argument and debate, errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them. Madison would never use Jefferson's high-flown language, but he would certainly agree with his friend's sentiment that I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility to every form of tyranny over the mind of man. These Virginian neighbors knew what it meant to individuals and to a whole culture to have to parrot an official orthodoxy or else shut up. And they knew what further physical tyrannies such unfreedom of belief could unleash, as Milton had seen long before when he visited the aged Galileo imprisoned for saying that the earth revolved around the sun. All history teaches this simple and obvious truth about freedom of thought and speech. But can one find a college administrator or a newspaper editor with the courage to say this to politically correct mobs howling down unorthodox speakers or writers today. Today's slogan seems to be, speak power to truth. The founders' conception of liberty rested on their Lockean political philosophy 
which got diffused throughout the colonies by magazines like William Livingston's, magazines that John Adams believed had created the real American Revolution, the decades-long cultural revolution that sharpened the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the colonists, and ultimately led them to take up arms in 1775. At Princeton, Madison and his classmates were still quoting Livingston's articles 20 years after publication. Talk about the political power of freedom of speech and of the press. As Livingston paraphrased Locke, men were born free and equal into the state of nature, endowed with rights to life, liberty, and property that come from nature prior to all political institution. But given fallen human nature being what it is, because the inborn depravity of mankind gives individuals a tendency to invade the person or fortune of their neighbors, the weak were a perpetual prey to the powerful in the state of nature. To preserve to every individual the undisturbed enjoyment of his acquisitions and the security of his person, Livingston wrote, men entered into society and appointed magistrates arming them with the total power of the community to protect everybody's safety and property. Such was the origin of government. This formulation contains several tightly compressed propositions that need unpacking. First, it includes a psychology. Men are not born with original virtue. They are not peaceful creatures naturally living together in harmony until the rise of capitalism or private property or racism sows strife among them. They come into the world with instinctive aggression that can lead them to oppress, rape, steal, and kill. Man is a wolf to man, as Plautus put it, and such thinkers as Hobbes and Freud have quoted his epigram in drafting their own political philosophies. Second, government is in essence a police power. On entering society, people authorize officials to protect their lives, liberties, and property by force, if necessary, against the predations of others. The fundamental civil right a right guaranteed by government, that is, is to be kept safe in your home and streets. Third, in the Founders' view, economic freedom is an inseparable component of liberty. In their Lockean political scheme, because your natural right to own the private property you have acquired or built is as absolute as your right to life and liberty, its protection by government is no less fundamental a civil right. You are free to accumulate it and do with it what you please under government protection. Fourth, government officials work for the citizens, not vice versa. 
as Jefferson later put it, kings are the servants, not the proprietors of the people. If officials don't do the job government was instituted to do, or if they use the power that citizens have given them for any purpose beyond what the citizens have specified, they lose their legitimacy. And as Locke wrote, and the Declaration of Independence emphasized, they can be fired. Government by expert administrators who supposedly know better than the people themselves was no part of their vision. As early as the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson was complaining that George III has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. Might as well be the EPA. Moreover, because the money that pays officials and supports their activities comes from the property that they are hired to protect, Livingston argued that any tax ought to be considered as the voluntary gift of the people to, to be applied to such uses as they, by their representatives, shall think expedient. That's why, to make an up-to-the-minute aside, defund the police is a logical incoherence. If there is no police power, there is no government, and hence no authority to collect taxes. Defund the police means dissolve the government. Eighteenth-century English Whigs, also Lockeans, believed that their taxes were voluntary gifts too, made through their elected representatives. Given England's corrupt electoral system and limited franchise, this was only a partial truth. But the American colonists, with no members of parliament, lacked even this shadow of consent. The founding fathers were deadly serious, therefore, when they said taxation without representation is tyranny. It wasn't a metaphor when George Washington called the stamp tax and the tea tax the most grievous and intolerable species of tyranny and oppression that was ever inflicted upon mankind. Continental Congressman Richard Henry Lee didn't think he was being overwrought in comparing the taxes to Egyptian bondage. In their explicitly stated view, the British government was stealing the property it was supposed to preserve. In addition to their Lockean political philosophy, the founders had concrete historical reasons for their outrage over taxation without their consent. Their ancestors had planted a civilization in the New World wilderness on their own initiative and by their own efforts. They did build that. Having forged prosperity out of wilderness, the founders had a positive, optimistic vision of what economic liberty could achieve. It was a vision that George Washington nicely articulated. The spirit of commerce, he noted, lies at the very heart 
of America's national character. How could it not, given that the country's first settlers were self-reliant, enterprising risk-takers even before they arrived? They had crossed the ocean seeking to live on their own terms and make their own fortunes, and they created a culture of free enterprise that Washington believed should be vigorously nurtured. Though a slave-owning Virginia planter, he was also a large-scale entrepreneur. He built a gristmill and a distillery which became America's biggest. He set up a fishery that exported salt, herring, and shad internationally, and he speculated so successfully in land that he became America's richest man. He had no patience with Jefferson's sentimentality about farming's moral superiority to manufacture, manufacturing and finance. He had thought past mercantilism before the revolution ended. Yes, he remarked, Spain has rich colonial silver mines, but the truth is that commerce and industry are the best mines of a nation. He was the prime mover of a Potomac Canal to serve as a highway for the trade of the Ohio country, and the conference he arranged at Mount Vernon for representatives of Virginia and Maryland to plan the canal led to the 1786 Annapolis Convention that in turn set up the Constitutional Convention the next year. His vision of America as a land of promise with milk and honey was a vision of opportunity for all. As president, he fully backed Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton's financial program for fostering the entrepreneurial spirit and turning his dream of a land of plenty into a reality. You know the details of that plan, the funding of the national debt, the bank, the mint, all to create sufficient credit to exploit fully the natural resources of the new nation. It was the key accomplishment after the Bill of Rights of Washington's first term. As important as Hamilton's economic vision was, though, his moral one was even more so. Why is it vital to have a highly developed, highly diversified economy he asked in his report on manufacturers. The object is not just the production of more goods and services, but also of human fulfillment in thinking them up and creating them. So while a more ample and various field of enterprise will certainly increase the wealth of the nation, it will also allow all the diversity of talents and dispositions which discriminate men from each other to develop to their fullest excellence. In a society with limited opportunity, he wrote, minds of the strongest and most active powers for their proper objects labor without effect if, if confined to uncongenial pursuits. But when all the different kinds of industry obtain in a community, each individual can find his proper element and can call into activity the whole vigor of his nature. 
To Hamilton, economics was soulcraft. As he put it, to cherish and stimulate the activity of the human mind by multiplying the objects of enterprise is not among the least considerable of the expedients by which the wealth of a nation may be promoted. To nurture human talent and realize human potential, to facilitate the pursuit of happiness, has the free enterprise system that is central to the founding ever had a more magnificent defense? And when he came to set up the mint, Hamilton took care to issue coins of the smallest denominations so that the humblest Americans could participate in the opportunity economy that this self-made immigrant framed. It's a grim paradox that the founders also valued liberty so highly because they lived amidst slavery. Even the slave owners among them knew how obscenely unjust the institution was. The whole commerce between master and slave, wrote Jefferson, is a perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, the most unremitting despotism on the one part and degrading submissions on the other. I needn't detail the toil, the sadistic punishments, the sexual exploitation, the breakup of families, the enforced ignorance, and the regulation of every aspect of life comprehended in Jefferson's decorous statement of the inhumanity of which human nature is capable. The New York Times has more than exhausted that subject. In 1759, more than a century before the Civil War, Richard Henry Lee of Stratford Hall, later president of the Continental Congress, and a cousin of Stratford-born Robert E. Lee, made his maiden speech in the Virginia House of Burgesses. His message to his fellow slave owners? End slavery. How can anyone who calls himself a Christian, he demanded, think that our fellow creatures are no longer to be considered as created in the image of God as well as ourselves and equally entitled to liberty and freedom by the great law of nature. Jefferson, who had written that all men are created equal and who had tried unsuccessfully at age 26 to persuade the colonial legislature to allow Virginians to free their slaves, wrote in words that prefigure Lincoln's second inaugural, when the measure of their tears shall be full, when their groans shall have involved heaven itself in darkness, doubtless a God of justice will awaken to their distress, and by diffusing light and liberality among their oppressors, or at length by his exterminating thunder, manifest his attention to the things of this world and that they are not to be left 
to the guidance of a blind fatality. Like most of the founders, he trusted to the advance of enlightenment to end slavery, but it was exterminating thunder that did the job after all. At any rate, when the young and pig-headed King George III began meddling in American affairs after decades of Britain's official policy of salutary neglect toward its New World colonies, the founders had a ready explanation for his intentions. The king, concluded Washington in 1774, aimed to make us as tame and abject slaves as the blacks we rule over with such arbitrary sway, a sentiment whose full implications it took the general a lifetime to grasp before he freed his slaves on his deathbed. Even earlier, Richard Henry Lee's brother Arthur, who became one of the revolution's foreign agents, declared, I cannot conceive of the necessity of becoming a slave while there remains a ditch in which one may die free. For such men to repeat, liberty wasn't just a word. Choosing your beliefs, your thoughts, your jobs, your officials, your laws, your taxes, speaking your mind, being equal citizens before a law that was the same for all, how could they take these freedoms for granted? Government, the founders recognized, is a double-edged sword. You arm officials with the power to protect you, but those officials have the same fallen human nature as everyone else. So who's to say that they won't use that power to oppress you as European governments had oppressed the colonists' forebears? Even a democratic republic has to be run by imperfect men, and thus even it can turn into what Richard Henry Lee called an elective despotism. It's important to remember today the founders' warning that the mere fact that you elect, that you elect representatives to govern you is no guarantee of liberty. You will readily think of examples. This danger worried the founding fathers constantly and they struggled to protect their new government from it. Their first experiment was to make that government too weak to oppress them, but it was also too weak to do its chief job of protecting them. The war against Britain proved longer and harder than it needed to be since the central government lacked authority to tax to pay soldiers or buy arms. With scanty funds, Washington's army starved and froze and died through the nightmare winters at Valley Forge, at Middlebrook, at Morristown. To see men without clothes to cover their nakedness, Washington wrote, without blankets to lay on, without shoes by which their marches might be traced by the blood from their feet, and almost as often without provisions as with, marching through frost and snow is a mark of patience and obedience, which in my opinion can scarce be paralleled.
yet they were willing to do this to uphold principles so lightly discarded today that they won the war was a miracle made possible by the second miracle of George Washington himself. Just as an aside, exploring Philadelphia years ago, I chanced upon Washington Square, an airy expanse with a marble monument at one end. Curious, I went to see what it was. A bronze statue of Washington guarded an everlasting light in a tomb which read, Beneath this stone rests a soldier of Washington's army who died to give you liberty. In fact, the two and a half acres of grass cover thousands of more unknown soldiers who succumb to wounds or disease. In June, some vandal desecrated the memorial with the spray-painted lie, committed genocide. Well, when the founders set out to write a new constitution to give the federal government powers sufficient to its purpose, they did so with their hearts in their mouths. They strictly limited those powers to what they deemed absolutely essential, and they spelled out what they were. They divided and subdivided power and made each branch of government a check on the others to guard against overreaching. They set frequent elections, gave the president a veto, and in turn made him and other officials subject to impeachment. No one was more alive to the danger of democratic despotism than Madison. If an elected majority tramples rights to life, liberty, or property given individuals by nature or God, it is still despotism. In the most famous of the Federalist Papers, number 10, Madison confronts the thought that, hold on, taxation with representation can be tyranny. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society, he writes. Those who are creditors and those who are debtors fall under a like discrimination. A landed interest, a manufacturing interest, a mercantile interest, a moneyed interest, grow up of necessity in civilized nations and divide them into different classes. The regulation of these differing interests forms the principal task of modern legislation. The heart of that task is taxation. The apportionment of taxes on the various descriptions of property, Madison continued, is an act which seems to require the most exact impartiality, yet there is perhaps no legislative act in which greater opportunity and temptation are given to a predominant party to trample on the rules of justice. Every shilling with which they overburden the inferior number is a shilling saved to their own pockets. And you can't count on enlightened statesmen or morality or religion to prevent such injustice. They won't. Nor is unjust taxation the only improper or wicked project a democratic majority 
might cook up to trample the property rights of the richer minority, Madison noted. There could also be, he wrote, a rage for paper money, for an, aboli for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property. America has seen all of these either as a threat or a reality since the revolution began. During the war, as Congress printed paper currency backed by nothing, inflation had soared. A dollar of gold or silver bought eight paper dollars at the start of 1779, 42 by year's end. By then, Washington wrote, a wagon load of money will scarcely purchase a wagon load of provision. The general was all too aware that such inflation meant a huge transfer of wealth from creditors to debtors. Someone who long ago had bought 600 acres from him in the most valuable part of Virginia that ought to have been paid for before the money began to depreciate, nay, years before the war, he complained, wanted to pay for the debt in 1779 in paper money, then worth no more than a year's salary for a common miller. Though fearful of injuring by any example of mine the credit of our paper currency, Washington also feared that to accept the deal is not serving the public but countenancing dishonesty. As for the abolition of debts and the equal division of property, a year before the Constitutional Convention, an uprising called Shays's Rebellion gave the founders an ominous glimpse of the property rights invasion citizens could plot. Thousands of depression-squeezed, pitchforked-armed young farmers in western Massachusetts had tried to hijack guns from the Springfield Armory to force the courts to close before judges could take their farms for tax delinquency or allow creditors to foreclose. Secretary of War Knox wrote to Washington that the rebels' creed is that the property of the United States has been protected from confiscation of Britain by the joint exertions of all, and therefore ought to be the common property of all, Washington reported to Madison in a letter bristling with incredulous underlinings. Further, Knox had written him, they are determined to annihilate all debts, public and private. In that case, Washington demanded in his letter to Madison, what security has a man of life, liberty, or property? Madison was just as aghast as Washington at the claim that the revolution should bring about socialist redistributionist egalité beyond the equality of rights and equality before the law. The founders aimed only for liberté. In fact, Madison insisted in Federalist 10, if you want liberty to pursue your own happiness in your own way, as Americans do, you are bound to have inequality since people have differing abilities and tastes. From the protection of differing and unequal faculties of acquiring property, he wrote, 
the possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. So while the whole constitutional machinery of which he was the chief architect, the extensive republic comprising many competing and mutually opposing interests, the strictly limited enumerated powers, the checks and balances of branch against branch and legislative house against legislative house, all aim to ensure that a government with the power to tax enough to fight wars effectively wouldn't be so strong that it would threaten the individual liberty and property it was instituted to protect. One of the main purposes of the Constitution, in other words, is to ensure that the unpropertied majority won't confiscate by unjust taxation or any other means the possessions of the, un of the propertied minority. That is what he meant by the tyranny of the majority. Thus, the redistributionist welfare state of the New Deal and the war on poverty is not an evolution from his vision, but a repudiation of it, a body snatching whose history I recount in Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution. As the Constitution's chief designer, Madison constructed his exquisitely balanced mechanism to work by the power of ambition countering ambition and interest countering interest. A realist about human nature, he devised a government for ordinary men as they really were, not for prodigies of virtue. Perhaps because the founders recognized that they had to work within the limits of human nature instead of trying to change it, their revolution was the only great one that succeeded. Still, Madison conceded, there had to be at least a smidgen of virtue somewhere. If there is not sufficient virtue among men for self-government, he wrote, then only the chains of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring each other. Washington was even more explicit about this, the last great founding idea we need to protect. A democratic republic requires a special kind of culture, one that nurtures self-reliance and the love of liberty. Constitutions are all very well, the founders often observed, but they're only parchment barriers easily breached if demagogues subvert the spirit and letter of the document. They can do this dramatically in one revolutionary putsch, or they can inflict a death by a thousand cuts, gradually persuading citizens that the Constitution doesn't mean what it says, but should be interpreted to mean something different, even something opposite. That's how the framers' constitution of limited and enumerated powers morphed into Woodrow Wilson's, FDR's, and Earl Warren's unlimited so-called living one. The ultimate safeguard against such usurpation is the vitality of America's culture of liberty. In his first State of the Union speech, Washington stressed this point 
emphasizing a view universal among the founders. The security of a free constitution, he said, depends on teaching the people themselves to know and to value their own rights, to discern and provide against invasions of them, to distinguish between oppression and the necessary exercise of lawful authority, to discriminate the spirit of liberty from that of licentiousness, and to unite a speedy but temperate vigilance against encroachments with an inviolable respect for the laws. If citizens start to take liberty for granted, if their culture, molded by journalists and writers, preachers and teachers, starts to hold other values in higher esteem, then the spirit that gives life to the Constitution will flicker out. Americans, Washington advised, should guard against listlessness for the preservation of natural and unalienable rights. For no mound of parchment can be so formed as to stand against the sweeping torrent of boundless ambition on the one side, aided by the sapping current of corrupted morals on the other. The founders well understood, as John Adams had said, how crucial were the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of Americans to the character of our republic. That's why today's all-out effort to persuade us that America is the opposite of a shining city on a hill, that our founding fathers were self-interested and oppressive schemers rather than heroes, that our national enterprise has been shameful from the start is so dangerous. For the boundless ambition, the lust for power that Washington feared doesn't only drive the various radicals whose agitations have set our cities aflame, it also impels a powerful and ruthless competitor for world hegemony. We can't overcome these threats if we don't believe we have something precious worth, worth defending. And we most emphatically have inherited just such a priceless and exceptional treasure. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm James Pinero, executive editor of The New Criterion. Myron, thank you for your urgent presentation. Truly, we join here together in the communion of the spirit of liberty, as you quote from Eben Burke. Well, what are we going to do? This is a question we often hear from the audience after a talk such as yours. I too worry that we will find ourselves in a new dark age of constraint and superstition. So what are we going to do about the squandering of our founders' priceless legacy? Well, the first thing we have to do is start teaching it, James. Uh, and it is not being done in the schools or in the colleges. And in fact, it has been subverted 
by the New York Times' 1619 project, which is, I mean, we all know how the ed schools have been purveying a social justice curriculum which gets fed to our children from kindergarten on up. We know what's going on in the universities once they get out of the public school system. Uh, and so uh, we really have to not only teach the right stuff, but combat this stuff. And it's been a miraculous development just recently, you know, just in the, just in the month of September uh, that President Trump has said, you know, we're going to look at schools that are teaching critical race studies and we're going to look at whether we're going to, whether we're going to keep funding them with federal taxpayer dollars. Uh, so, you know, while I think that culture forms institutions, forms government, it's also a dialectical relationship and government has a reciprocal relationship on culture. And I think that what's happening now is that there is enough dismay over this sapping of liberty um, and this uh, dirtying of the founder's legacy um, that, you know, there really is a political political backlash against it, um, which is very, very, very powerful. I mean, you know this business with uh, Princeton the other day. I, I love this. Um, uh, President Ice Gruber uh, releases his, y you know, you've seen how many of these, how many of these from every nonprofit institution that we know, I, I, these mealy-mouthed, you know, confessions of our, our guilt about our systemic racism, right? So Princeton President Ice Gruber releases his, and an assistant secretary of education says, oh, you're systemically racist? Um, well, could you please send us a spreadsheet telling us exactly whom has been adversely affected by this, who has committed it, and, you know, a whole list of particulars, because, by the way, you've gotten $75 million of the taxpayers' money and have signed a statement saying that you don't mm -hmm. discriminate according to Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Well, this is going to have a powerful, powerful effect. That's uh, right. So, yeah. you know, I think that the backlash is underway, and uh, we'll wait to see what happens. Their bluff the has been called. Their bluff has been, it's magnificent, it's a catch-22. Mm -hmm. No matter what President Ice Gruber says, mm -hmm. he's a liar. This year on Constitution Day, speaking from the National Archives, President Trump praised the centuries of tradition, wisdom, and experience in our founding document. He singled out a radical movement for attempting to demolish this treasured and precious inheritance. He even announced the creation of a 1776 commission to help restore patriotic education to our schools. Do you think it's possible to alter the course of national education? You know, so it's conservatives sometimes tend to be pessimistic. 
um, and tend to believe that the ratchet of history only goes in one direction. Um, but I'm here to tell you, remember, I ran City Journal, right? and I took it over when Rudy Giuliani was elected because I thought, wait a minute, maybe we can do something here. Um, so I have actually seen that things that human folly and evil um, have ruined uh, can very often be restored by human decency and will. Um, so I don't think that uh, I don't think that the ratchet of history only goes down. That things only that there's a kind of political and cultural entropy um, that cannot be resisted, just as any of Newton's laws can't be resisted. Um, I I don't think that. I think I think we can turn it around, but I think we have to do it on every front. Mm. Um, so you know, yay to President Trump. Um, and he, he pointed out some historians and scholars who were there in the audience who are on this commission, friends of ours, Peter Wood, Bill McClay. Um, you know, it's one, one, wonderful. Uh, and, you know, but what we have to do, I mean, uh, uh, one of the things I'm hoping to do in the new criterion this year ahead um, is talk about some of the ways in which we have subverted uh, this legacy um, so that we can think about, at least, um, whether we're really wedded to principles that are in opposition to the Founders' vision. Mm -hmm. That's very good to hear. One of your defining books is The Dream and the Nightmare, the 60s Legacy to the Underclass. From the Great Society to Free Love, you argue that the radical 60s failed the populations it was purportedly meant to save. How much does our current radical moment reflect the 1960s? And what will the outcome be for today's underclass? Oh, I mean, it comes straight out of the 60s. Um, remember also, uh, you know, I picked this up at just slightly after the new criterion's own Roger Kimball had written tenured radicals. Um, so, you know, this is a movement that has been a long time building. Um, and the, the trouble with these ideas, you know, the tr I, I mean, what, what this attack on our founding principles is all about um, is an effort to say that there is no standard of right and wrong. There's no standard of better or worse. There's no standard of good or evil. Um, so that means that anything goes, right? And the world can be remade and reshaped as, uh, as, as you want it to be. Well, this was the terrible fruit of the 1960s. Uh, and as far as the underclass was concerned, when, when the majority culture um, through the movies, through the universities, through even through the pulpit of Riverside Church, uh, was saying that uh, there's no shame in illegitimacy, um, that criminality is a understandable rebellion against the oppressive inequality and injustice of society, um, that marriage is a kind of oppression um, so that uh, there's nothing that should be 
we didn't use the word in those days, privileged about the two-parent family, that drug use was an adventure, um, that welfare was proper reparation, reparations, we're hearing the word all over again, proper reparations for a systemically, systemically racist society, you know. Well, okay, the middle class recovered from these delusions for the most part, or to a degree recovered from them, um, enough so that it's now a luxury habit to get married mm -hmm. and raise your children with a spouse, right? Um, but you know, for the underclass, it's been a, it's been a catastrophe. And even before this 60s movement began, um, I came to college in 1962. So my sort of thinking life uh, has coincided with the civil rights movement. And what, what I've seen in my own life and you know, been a part of, really, um, is this half-century-long effort of the society and the polity to turn itself inside out to get rid of the vestiges of slavery and Jim Crow. I mean, and we really have turned ourselves inside out and, have, and in certain ways have gone too far. So for people to be bloviating about systemic racism in the year 2020 is actually a joke. Um, you know, it's, there is no such thing as systemic racism. Um, our society has been dedicated to getting rid of it at least since the 1964 Civil Rights Act and arguably since the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision. So it's going to have the same effects. I mean, you know, yes, yes, we created a black middle class, or we enlarged, we enlarged an already existing black middle class uh, since the 64 Civil Rights Act, but we have also all the more immiserated the, the underclass population um, in a way that it is very hard to see how we're going to fix readily. It, we're going to have another lost generation. And here's a related question about the family. When Daniel Patrick Moynihan issued his 1965 report called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, concerning the alarming rate of black children born out of wedlock, the report was variously denounced and ignored. At the time, the out-of-wedlock birth rate among American blacks was around 25%, while the national average was under 5%. Today, the national average is 40%, while the rate for black Americans is around 70%. As you well know, it is beyond question that there is a correlation between a child's future success and an intact nuclear family. And yet progressives have only doubled down on radical experimentation, attacking not only the ideas of husband and wife, but even now man and woman. Yes, it's true. Why aren't conservative arguments about the family winning as they once did 10, 20, or 30 years ago? Well, were they really winning 10 and 20 years ago? Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is we are a very tolerant society. Um, and we believe what I think is the mistaken idea that a society should be judged by how it treats those at the margins, um, the insane, uh, the mentally 
disabled, uh, say. Um, so we have had now so much focus on things like uh, uh, the inclusion of gays uh, in our society, now gay marriage, now the, I mean, whatever transgenders are, we, we have that. So as we abolish, as you say, the idea of men and women, um, you know, and as we, as, as we once again try to deny the nature of human nature, um, you know, of, of, of course what has been the building block of society since the dawn of history, since we have any record of people living in society, is the nuclear family. I mean, that is what society is built on. Uh, so I, I think that uh, we're going to have to fight for this one. But what makes the fight all the more difficult is that we conservatives are part of the American tradition of tolerance and generosity. Uh, I mean, especially in a place like New York, we say, you know, gays, absolutely no problem, you know. and. And so from that justly tolerant and welcoming attitude, we go to what then is the logical but crazy mm -hmm. next step of gay marriage. And the trouble with all these things is that it says, okay, well, marriage is just a kind of lifestyle choice. Um, you can take it or leave it. You can have it in any form you want. Um, and once you do that, you have subverted the essential building block of society, and that's where we are right now. So, um, in order, you know, we've we've said, we've said yes, 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 yes to so many propositions that if we are to go back to say, wait a minute, the nuclear family is absolutely preeminent, mm -hmm. and we have to protect it, then there's an awful lot of no's that we have to say. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, unfortunately, in any real national creed, there's a lot of no's. There has to be. Mm -hmm. Shea's rebellion. In your talk, you mentioned how this event of 1786 gave the founders an ominous glimpse of the property rights invasion citizens could plot. As Washington demanded of Madison, what security has a man of life, liberty, or property? Are there lessons from that early socialist episode that we can draw on today? Well, I mean, as I tried to emphasize in our talk, um, you know, property is a natural right, according to the founders. Um, and uh, it's not that they were in favor of maintaining the status quo, because they wanted a society in which there would be a huge amount of mobility, of upward mobility. And they imagined a kind of limitless upward mobility. Um, Hamilton, who framed this, was a perfect case in point. There he was, you know, and he said, in the groveling condition of a clerk in St. Croix, you know, at the very, the very margin of the empire, despairing of being able to have any kind of enlarged life. Um, and so, you know, all he wanted to do was to give, to give Americans what they had come here for, the opportunity to make the best life for themselves that they, 
that they possibly could. Well, you know, we know from history what has happened in regimes which try to make that equality of property that Shays' rebels were trying to make. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, somebody has to enforce this equality. And somebody has to enforce it with that degree of power that the founders knew to be the antithesis of liberty. So, as we also know from history, in all the regimes in which we've had to each according to his needs, from each according to his ability, we have had the most terrible tyranny, both physical and spiritual. Um, and so there is something very chilling about what we're seeing just now. You know, when I was young, uh, we could always point to the Soviet Union and say, look at, do you want to live like that? You know, what would it have been like to be born in Russia in 1917 and live your whole life under that kind of tyranny? And everybody understood that. Mm -hmm. I mean, just plan, there was no, but now, that's you right. know, I mean, that's the only downside of the breakup of mm -hmm. the Soviet empire that we can't say, look at them. No, well, I was born in, and raised in that clear dialectic as well, but the younger generation, they don't know it. They have no idea, mm -hmm. no. Should we have said life, liberty, and the pursuit of property instead of the pursuit of happiness? Would that have been a, a better founding principle? You, you know, actually, where Jefferson got that formulation uh, came from George Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. Um, and. Unfortunately, George Mason was a wonderful man, but not the most felicitous prose stylist. Um, and he spoke of life, liberty, the means of acquiring property, and uh, the pursuit of happiness and other, I mean, it just goes on and uh, on. So and that's on. the edit. Yeah, we got the edit. We got the edit. I see. We got the edit. <laughs> but everybody understood, you know, everybody understood what was contained in Jefferson's beautiful formulation. Mm -hmm. The pursuit of happiness, that means Hamilton's go out and take advantage mm -hmm. of opportunity. As we have unfortunately seen, that fundamental civil right to be kept safe in your home and streets is now under attack. Politicians let cities burn, judges release arsonists and looters to riot again. The establishment offers hand-wringing and excuses. How was the mayhem of the 1960s eventually put down? And what do you think should be the proper response today? Well, people didn't let the riots rage in the 1960s. Um, you know, now uh, uh, here in New York, uh, the, the one good thing that one must say about Mayor John Lindsay um, is that in shirt sleeves, he walked into Harlem where things were starting to get really restless. And he said, come on, fellas. Um, you know, we're on your side, we're trying to make a just society and let's, mm -hmm. let's keep things cool. But elsewhere, um, people used force. They used police with batons and tear gas because they understood that once you let the social order fray, it tears. Mm -hmm. um, and what we should have done in places like Seattle and Portland where the mayors don't understand, you, you know, what... But, by what right can the mayor of Portland or Seattle or New York, for that matter, come to the citizens and say, give me your taxes? 
I mean, my answer is for what? Mm -hmm. For what? You know, you're not providing me with what government's primary function is to provide, which is to make me safe, not to have somebody's business burned down, you know, to have public order. And we don't even just go on Twitter and you'll see what you'll see what disorder is all about. We're neighbors on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And through your work as the editor of City Journal, the policy magazine of the Manhattan Institute, you are one of the saviors of our city. What is it like to see your urban successes so suddenly reversed through closures, riots, and political dysfunction? And what is the future of New York? Grief. Just grief. I mean, I could cry seeing this, you know. It is so hard, James, to build something up, right? It takes such a concerted will of so many people, you know, and faith, and uh, and it's so easy to tear something down. It's like you look at what's happened to the universities, you know, guys like Nathan Pusey or Nicholas Murray Butler built these institutions and... You know, and that's Burke's belief as well. It's so oh, easy to tear it down, it's so hard so, to build up. I mean, there, there it is. So I look out at this and I think I will not live to see New York come back mm. to the New York that we had just a few short months ago. And you know what? In that period of time, we had 20 years of good governance here. In that period of time, by a sort of rough back of the envelope calculation I did, and I'm an English major, so don't hold me to this. Um, But the total value of New York property rose 800%. So you want a measure of what that law and order created. It's the glittering city that the rioters are now spray painting with obscene slogans, uh, and I won't even go on. Your most recent book is Clarence Thomas and the Lost Constitution, published by Encounter. Beyond Justice Thomas's astonishing personal story, what, what is it that defines him and his jurisprudence? Oh, well, he understands that the Framers' Constitution that they gave us in 1787 as perfected by the Bill of Rights, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, and 19th Amendments, um, was something extraordinary and precious just for the reasons that the founders thought it was so, so wonderful. Um, And he understands that actually there's been a move to displace that original constitution with what Woodrow Wilson called a living constitution. Woodrow Wilson saw the Supreme Court sitting as a kind of permanent constitutional convention. He despised the founders as figures from a clockwork age, whereas we live in a Darwinian age. and, uh, uh, you know, and so he set out the ideological framework, which FDR then supersized in the New Deal. And the New Deal was almost entirely unconstitutional, as the Supreme Court kept saying over and over and over again until FDR threatened to pack it. And then the first Justice Roberts mm-hmm. chickened out mm-hmm. and said, OK, right, changed his vote. Um, 
And as one legal scholar once said, what's the point of pr protecting the court at the cost of the law? Um, and that's what happened at the New Deal. And so then it came to be that the Supreme Court stood aside while the government remade society um, in an egalitarian, share the wealth way, redistributionist way. The great society went on to do it even even further. The Warren Court, you know, waved its hands and blessed even more of that. Uh, and now we don't have that constitution anymore. So what, what Justice Thomas has said is there were all these unconstitutional Supreme Court decisions. And by the way, we don't live in England anymore. We're not English colonies anymore. We live in a democratic republic under a written constitution, and it's written for a reason, says the justice. Um, and the reason is that is the controlling law of the land. And yes, we have to be very respectful of the opinions, the judgments of our esteemed predecessors, but they're just opinions, actually. And when they're wrong, we should not, not only should we not hesitate, but it's our duty to keep thinking and rethinking and rethinking and rethinking. Substantive due process, is there such a thing? You know, uh, what the 1870 Supreme Court did to the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause that then allowed 100 years of Jim Crow, should we really pay respect to those infamous decisions? Should we really respect Dred Scott, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. should we really respect Korematsu? Um, and Justice Thomas says that's ridiculous, that, that we don't live in a British common law system right. where the judgments of judges are the law. It's the Constitution that's the law. The Supreme Court is again front and center following the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What is your opinion of the Roberts Court? And do you see any lessons from Thomas for this next consequential appointment? Oh, how I wish that the president would appoint a former clerk of Justice Thomas, um, of uh, whom we now have many sitting on the federal bench. Um, now, Justice Roberts uh, is an interesting case. I think that he's like Justice Owen Roberts. Um, he believes in the institutional integrity of the court, mm -hmm. um, and he believes he has to protect it against the thuggish threats of somebody like Sheldon Whitehouse to pack it. Um, and so, my, you know, I mean, who can know what's in his heart? But my impression is he just wants to make nice mm -hmm. um, and to save the court, but again, why save the court at the expense of the Constitution? Huh. So what, I mean, what's going to happen now? James, we're in no man's land, you know. <laughs> uh, we're in the ether right now. I have, I have no idea. <laughs> you began your professional life as a Dickensian. Your first book was Dickens and the Social Order. You then went on to be the editor at Fortune magazine before becoming the founding editor of City Journal. Myron, what can you tell us about your own political trajectory? Oh, James, you'll be here all day, you know. <laughs> you'll be here all day. Um, I can tell you, 
I can tell you that, of course, I started out left of center, having been at Columbia, right, having been taught by all these Marxists and Freudians. Um, uh, and then two things happened. Um, I came back from two years getting a master's at Cambridge in England um, when they were just cleaning up the mess from the riots at Columbia in 1968. Uh, I came back to do a PhD at Columbia. Um, and all my friends, my old friends from undergraduate days, were under indictment for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest from the riots. And they were all talking about America spelled with three Ks. Mm -hmm. And they all thought that we lived under tyranny and fascism. Um, and I thought, these people are crazy. You know, they're just simply crazy. I know that that's not true. I've been 3,000 miles away for two years. I know it isn't true. They don't know anything about politics. And by the way, neither do I. I was an English major. Um, so I thought, well, I better learn something. And I didn't know what to do. So I went to the bookstore and looked at the politics section and pulled out a copy of Hobbes's Leviathan. And that's where I started. And when I started teaching at Columbia, you know Columbia's famous uh, contemporary civilization course, which is basically political philosophy from Plato to NATO. Um, that's what I taught when I taught at Columbia. And I ended up being the senior man teaching mm -hmm. that, teaching that course, which I loved. And that's how I learned political theory, by teaching it. So that was the, that was the first thing. And the second thing was, I remember that when I was teaching at Columbia, um, some young Asian neighbor um, who was a computer maven, um, work, working for a bank, uh, doing the computer stuff for a bank, came home, you know, near midnight one night. Um, and you know how it, how it used to be in our, in our, in our buildings. You'd, you'd have a key and you'd open the outer door and push it open, right? And then you'd be in the lobby and the door would lock shut behind you. Well, the typical kind of mugging in those days was the pushing. Um, some guy would come up behind you as you were doing this, push you in. Somebody mugged this guy when he came home and murdered him. Mm. And suspicion immediately fell on one of the so-called homeless whom the Presbyterian church around the corner was feeding you know, at, its, at its free lunch program. Able-bodied guy who didn't live in the neighborhood. So the neighbors all went to see the minister of this Presbyterian church and said, why are you bringing these people into our neighborhood? They're, they're not our neighbors. Um, and look at what's happened here. And the minister said, well, yeah, it is a problem, he said, you're going to just have to curfew yourselves. And at that point, I thought, just a minute. Mm -hmm. What is society for? And furthermore, I have been in favor of every single measure uh, of the civil rights movement and the great society. Everything. I've been in favor of it. Has it made my, and Columbia was a very poor and very mixed neighborhood in those days, has it made my poor neighbor's lot any better? And I finally had to look around and thought, wait a minute, everything I believed in was a mistake. Um, that come and get it welfare, decriminalizing crime, 
you know, sanctifying illegitimacy and giving welfare payments for it, celebrating drug use. Look at what it had done to my worst off neighbors. And that was it for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on my way right um, after that. One final question. Has it always been the best of times and the worst of times? No. Um, history ebbs and flows. And this is not the best of times. <laughs> certainly feels that way. Uh, I know for our audience that one of your recent books and one of your best is The Founders at Home, The Building of America. Myra and I join my colleagues and our supporters in saying how grateful we are that you've led us into your home for this special occasion. And for those watching, thank you for your support of The New Criterion. And Myron, thank you for letting us join you here today. It's been a pleasure, James. It's a pleasure to have you and to have the wonderful New Criterion Circle, too. <laughs>